They're very young to live by. We're very serious people. Now, if you're subscribed to our quarterly financial reports, you would have seen that over the last few weeks, we've discovered five, five brand new archetypes. And they'll soon be available for viewing at one of our archetype viewing centers across the United States. And perhaps our most celebrated achievement as of late is our brand new pill just entered phase three clinical trials. And hopefully this thing will allow you to instantly, over the period of a few short years, integrate your shadow. And of course, you can't have missed our brand new walkie-talkie range, which allows you to quite literally talk with your anima. We're very, very excited about that. And in fact, our archetypes are currently buy one, get one free. If you... And now for something completely different. Stop saying that. Why is that cup bigger than your face? Can't, can't you... <laughs> sorry, Jet. I am sorry. I... <laughs> Like to be calm. No, I don't want to be calm. Thank sure, you. Sure, you're not feeling not right sleepy. Now. Yes, I am. So don't touch anything. <laughs> oh God, I've got to stop you. I'm sorry, Jen. I'm wasting your time. I'm, I'm so sorry. sorry. So sorry. Oh. This is so unprofessional. <laughs> oh, gone to pot. You look at my stomach. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. Don't say. Blimey. That's a form of hysteria. That pregnancy belly, isn't it? That is this. In men, yeah, oh, it right, is. Yeah. It's a particular form of hysteria. It's got a special name. Yeah. After. Look it up. Yeah, it's called the fat bastard. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I've got crunchy where my teeth are now. Thanks oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. We've all filled all the holes up. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Too dry. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's my age. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like a shit itself. That's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> Some fucking tricksters come and broke me bloody tray and made me do this. I've got chop up for him me mouth Oh my god, what a wild thing. Doesn't say much to me, does it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> You're still not done. You're still not done. Five, four, three, two, one. Thank you for that question. And uh, the next question comes from Kath C. And she asks, what do you two think about that? It's a layered question. Uh, when you go on the naughty step, go on, go, go. Please, James has just put, please, I sort of love it. I'm going to answer this. Okay, I'll be right in a minute. Oh my God, I see the back of James' head. I'm not looking at you two. I'm not giving you encouragement. I'm turning away. <laughs> I knew I could see through people, but I didn't expect to see <laughs> to see the back of your head. You're still at it. This <laughs> is right, the right. problem. Okay, okay. Uh, oh God. Oh, this is Luxie. This question comes from that. What you did not expect, and he or she, I think it's a he, asks. I suppose this is a rather basic question, but when it's one, but it's one that I think is important at this moment in my life. What attitude can one adopt and what practical things can one do to respect one's psyche, to maximise the resulting reciprocal respect back? Pardon the alliteration. I'm assuming that our friend, and I do recognise his name from the Discord, uh, is coming at this from a Jungian perspective. What I would advise, and this might be a little bit unexpected, is don't use any of the orthodox analytical psychology or psychodynamic approaches to doing this 
The reason for that is that they are far too artifactual. In other words, they're too structured. They're not naturalistic. So we, and, and certainly I do, I, uh, I, I tend to use some of Milton Erickson's techniques, which is to approach the psyche on its own terms without any theory. Now that actually feeds into what Jung himself said to do. But, you know, we need to understand that Jung didn't leave a handbook of techniques at all. Other people have interpreted his ideas through the application of technique. If you're going to respect the psyche, as I say, the absolute best way is to set up a signalling system, which Milton Erickson's hypnosis does very, very well. And you can use it as a self-hypnosis method whereby you open yourself up to receiving information, to confirming receipt of that information, to analogically log back onto the psyche and communicate back to it your willingness to be open. That will get an almost immediate effect if you do it properly. And the advantage of this is, as I say, it has no theoretical constructs, there's no baggage, no structures, no filters in the way. <clears throat> it's just simply opening yourself up to naturalistic communication from the psyche on its own terms. So I'm going to say get away from all presuppositions about what might happen. Uh, would you agree on that, Paul? Uh, yes, I think I would. Uh, I take it you're thinking of things like the idiomotor signalling and, yeah. and so on yeah. to give yes. feedback about your ongoing experience and yes. anything that might yeah. arise. Yeah. Indeed. In everyday life, I mean, things do, don't they? Sometimes, just in the course of a day, things will unfold yeah. in a particular way. And yeah. uh, I think yeah. once you set those things in place, they tend yes. to run automatically they as do. well. They do. Yeah. And, and there is a structure, isn't there? There is, there is yeah. a structure. Oh, I've just said set all structure aside. Yeah. But the structure is in the method of approach, and it's not a filter to do with a presupposition of content mm. with regard to what you receive from the unconscious. Now, it's a very difficult thing to explain without a demonstration. Mm. But the reason I'm reluctant to give a demonstration of that in a medium like this is that people do have to be prepared in the right way. If you go about it in the wrong way, then you may well constellate things that you'd rather not have done because you may not have emptied your mind appropriately of any of the kind of thing that I would be concerned that would make itself present. So, yeah, and I think we're going to have to handle this in, in some way so people really do understand what we mean. But it's the fastest way and it's the cleanest way of giving the psyche an indication of your respect for it and your openness to receive communications. Because what you do is you tone down the technical side, if you like, of the ego's perception of itself and all of the baggage that it's acquired over interpreting how the unconscious should present itself because it's there anyway and it's communicating all the time either through you around you very often so other people see it before you do mm. or internally directly to you so it's a signal to noise issue you need to turn down the noise of ego consciousness in order to get a clear signal from the unconscious um, it's also a way that avoids superstition too. And that might be a strange thing to say that using Jungian techniques you expose yourself to superstition. Well, what you will potentially do if you're not careful is provide the unconscious and perhaps the less friendly parts of it 
with a vehicle for expressing its contents in a near or actually frankly an open superstitious way so you want to avoid that to do that though you do need to tone down the signal from consciousness to continue on with that answer and to give it a little bit more of a solid uh, form this is a continuing professional development course which was originally intended and was delivered over a weekend it's a two-day workshop in clinical hypnotherapy which was delivered by Pauline and I now this contains some of the techniques that you could usefully employ in beginning to access mm. the unconscious safely but there is a disclaimer in the document and it's important that if anybody accesses this and we will offer it as a PDF download seeing as there has been a lot of interest in it it's important that you understand that disclaimer because obviously any technique and let's be honest out in the marketplace on Amazon or anywhere or in any book about Jung or Jung's works you can access ideas like active imagination and other things which are potentially harmful if you misuse them that, that's true with anything and it's true with this mm. so anybody who accesses this information in this form should do so at their own risk having said that it's a lower risk than you might believe if you do it properly and if you approach the psyche with proper respects mm. so um, yeah uh, James will probably put the link to this in the description and it will be available as uh, a PDF download. This will also um, serve as an introduction to professional training in hypnotherapy and the, uh, the syllabus for the whole course, the whole psychosystems analysis course in hypnotherapy which will qualify you to professional standards authority level of accredited register status in the UK is at the back of the document. That's if you're interested in that. So we, we can we can move forward to offering full professional training. Um, the course would also include an awful lot on psychodynamics as well and on other things, but you can see that from the document. But yeah, Chevreau's pendulum is in here, how to calibrate and use it properly. Mm. Uh, and also a technique which is broadly described as being self-hypnosis. And uh, that is a good technique for, for gaining access, rapport and respect with the psyche but it's not purely Jungian you know uh, people who follow Jungian techniques without a wider training and of course the information is available out there to persuade people or, or to to tempt them into doing it they can expose themselves to potential harm now the idea of this is that it'll be comparatively safe <clears throat> and it'll be comparatively quick and it does work mm. But you have to approach it with respect in mind as well. That means setting aside your ego, your ego, and its presuppositions, its theoretical constructs, and the like. So yeah, we we can um, we can make this available now for people who are interested, with that caveat and disclaimer, frankly, mm -hmm. in mind that you only do this knowing, as it says in the document, and as I'm saying now, that there is potential for some harm if you misuse this. So there will be a link to that in the description down below. And of course, as I said in the intro... Can I just add, sorry? Uh, that document has um, a really good breakdown on the history of hypnotherapy and its involvement in the evolution of psychodynamics. So you're going to find Freud in there, uh, Breuer, Charcot, other teachers of, uh, of Sigmund Freud. Carl Jung is in there, Milton Erickson's in there, um, Ernest Rossi is in there. 
So there's a lot of information that will be very, very important for you if you're just interested in psychodynamic theory as well uh, and how those techniques have evolved and developed. So there's, there's a lot of material that will be of use to you in a general sense as well as just practical techniques. So it's mm. a good foundation as an introduction to the dynamics of psychodynamic therapy. So thank you for your question, that what you did not expect. And uh, maybe that answer was not what you expected. So there you go. And, uh, and, and this next question comes from Andre. And Andre asks, can we ever interpret the lack of strong, deep and emotional dreams as a possible sign that there's few things to counterbalance in the waking life? Um, I guess it depends what's meant by strong and mm. deep and meaningful. If, if the suggestion is that it has to be archetypal material as opposed to complex material, it's not mm. clear, is it, as to no. No. maybe the actual meaning of the question. Um, it could just be that you know, you're know so well adapted to everyday life that, that there isn't the necessity for that yeah. uh, to be occurring on a regular basis or to have dreams that are, uh, are you know, intense um, emotionally or, mm. or have archetypal content uh, associated with them. So I don't think that's a negative, do no. you? They do dry up too. They do. And yeah. Yeah, they, they tend to dry up when you're making progress. Yes, yeah. That's yeah. what I mean when yeah. you're actually well adapted to everyday life. Is yeah, yeah. You usually find that they'll they'll just store up. You know, it's um, it's a little bit like when we were talking about the shadow and the alter ego complex that you can empty yeah. it. You can for for a while. Yes. Um, the energy from the alter ego by incorporation of its immediate pressures, but you don't empty it as a structure. You don't empty it as a process. No. So the, the compensatory and complementary uh, function of dreaming doesn't end simply because your recall of dreams ends, but it will probably be a product of that process that they attenuate or tone down, because as Paul says, yeah. you're, you're actually making some progress. Yeah, you shouldn't consider it a negative. I don't not think at, all. at all. Not at all. No, no, not I at all. I think because there's so much emphasis on dreaming, particularly mm. in Jungian-based material, that it, it yeah. can become almost like the be-all and end-all yeah. to everything. It, it, um, it can. And you, can. you do have to be careful with that. Yeah. You, you never exhaust them as potential. Mm. No. But if they, if they slow down, then that is a clear signal that at the moment you're making the necessary adjustments that yes. were expected of you. Yeah. Uh, and as we said before, if you're using other techniques such as creative therapies or creative media to express the unconscious, mm. that can mean that you're doing that instead because the creative process accesses the psyche at a deep level too, doesn't yeah. it? So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be concerned about that. Uh, I'd be interested by it as a phenomenon. Yes. You know, and uh, take it from there. They will return. They mm. will. I did have, you know, sometimes I get dreams that aren't particularly... Actually, more recently, as my development's been a little bit smoother, the dreams haven't been as significant for myself, uh, at least immediately on the surface. But over, say, 2019, when I really did need to kick up the ass, I really, really did. There were some dreams in there that were kind of boring. So taken in isolation, you know, maybe there were some that, that didn't have it. But overall, it's like a general theme within you, within your dreams, I guess. It's more of a single dream analysis. You could do more of like a meta-analysis, especially if there's like more recurring motifs in there as well. That could be something to consider. But, but, but deeper and more emotional and so on isn't necessarily better, is it? Yeah, no, and it would depend, exactly as you said at the beginning, it would depend what you mean by emotional, per se. You know, if you're not waking up crying or anything like that. And it would, maybe, it would, would it depend on your typology as well, to some extent? Maybe. You know, in, in terms of how it's going to, if the unconscious wants to communicate with you, it would presumably do it in the fashion which it sees best fit, 
I know the unconscious doesn't have a type, but I don't remember waking up from dreams and or even having particularly emotional dreams. They'd more be sort of intellectual curiosities in a way. That might be because I'm a thinking type. Maybe, James. I think, though, if um, as a lot of these um, young men and women are um, who watch the podcast, that you kind of steeped in young, then there may be the tendency to feel that somehow dreams are excessively important. I mean, of course they're important, but, you know, things can be instructive in lots of different ways. So what you might describe as, you know, a dream being more boring may not necessarily be a bad thing. Uh, it may just, as we were suggesting before, um, show that there isn't the necessity uh, for anything more to be happening, that you're actually better adjusted to maybe what's going on in your outer life. And so uh, you don't require that intensity of dream. So, uh, yeah, it's um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because, uh, like I said, there's a tendency with young to almost want to experience things in a very deep and meaningful and an emotional way all the time. But that, that doesn't equate with being better. No. Or suggest, you know, that uh, somehow that's a bad thing, that that's not still happening. Mm. It's all about how you appraise things. Yeah. Yeah, and they will be back. Yes, uh, uh, and they, yes. They will, they will there change. Is a there is a, it's a dynamic thing, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? So yeah. there will be a flow to things. If, uh, if it's reacted by calming down and attenuating, yes. which is common enough once you've made progress, mm then as your outer adaptation changes yes. it will respond as well yes so yeah it, it's an interesting phenomenon and it if is. You, I, I personally feel and this is my experience that if if you um, respect the fact that it's doing that mm. then it will notice it it will be yes. very aware and it will log on you know and there are as I say, and I mentioned before in the, the, the hypnotherapy module, there are suggestions in there about how you can let your psyche know politely, message received and understood. Yes. Uh, and how to thank it. Mm. Uh, if you don't treat the psyche with respect, and it's very easy to do because it's just manners, the kind of manners that you would employ in the outer world. Yeah. If you don't do that, you can expect cooperation to be withdrawn or at least to flatline. Um, but if you want it to really engage with you, be nice to it, yeah. like you would with anyone else. Mm. And you know, at that point, automatically, you want to know what the anima is, lads? You're using your anima then, if, if you're polite and, and you communicate with your unconscious in that way. Mm. And then the reverse, the reflection of the anima as it emerges out to meet your conscious use of it, then the channel of communication opens. In that sense, it's Jungian, although I'm not emphasising that because I don't want people to start to insert all sorts of, and I'm sorry I'm going to have to say it, all sorts of by proxy knowledge that you may have gained from books or indeed other people about how to do this. You have to treat yourself with the same respect that if you were a therapist, you would treat a patient or a client or any third person. If you treat your you're in a world with as much respect as professionally you would another person. You get exactly the same response. Yeah. You get cooperation. But if you insist on, on something, how would you like it if somebody came up and started demanding things off you in an infantile way? Yes. You wouldn't like it. People don't like it. That's why manners have evolved to make sure that cultures run properly. Mm. 
it's why feudal Japan yes. had such excellent, so good very, yeah. very high standards mm. of respect and manners. Yeah. But they had the reverse of that too. If people didn't do that, mm. then they got their heads cut off with samurai yeah. swords. That's very extreme, but it does show that manners, it's good. It's good for survival. It's certainly good for communication. So when you communicate with yourself, do it in a natural way, and then you'll find this thing that's called the anima will be present. Not because you've deliberately asked for it or looked for it or constructed this straw man image of it. It'll just be there and it'll perform its own function. And this is the edge, the absolute edge that these kind of techniques have over all of this structured nonsense, which really disguises and gets in the way. Mm. I'm sorry to be so passionate about that, but mm -hmm. we know, we know from real world experience, if you actually ask the anima, if you go chasing after it, she's elusive, she'll disappear, she'll run off down a cave somewhere into darkness and take you with her, because what you're doing is imposing fantasies between you and it, and you project then perhaps some cultural impression of what the anima is inwardly. Projection goes inside as well as outside. And if you project towards the, the unconscious something which is not agreeable to it, that's bad manners. If you allow it to tell you what it wants and in the format that it wants you to receive it, that's good manners, so you get a result. So if you see then, you will automatically get the anima working for you if you allow the psyche to tell you what it or she or he or whatever form it's going to take looks like mm. that's all you have to do simple yeah i think also as we were saying yesterday steve don't don't um underestimate the value of ego adaptation no it's not it, you know the relating to your unconscious properly um and um understanding the value of that is is hugely important but if you if you can't implement it in outer life uh, and have it work for you in that way well yeah. really what is the value of going in it have you have to have a foot in both camps mm. yeah you do the, the ego has a real function it really it? does um, yeah it's it's all about plasticity the, you know instincts are not fixed you know in the sense that they are only the narrow they're not the broad but they, they also push very hard along the whole width the whole breadth of what yes. they are yeah that means that they will overshoot sometimes so yeah. if, you, if you can imagine that as a broad front and there's your ego yes. some of it will flow past either side mm. because it has to push the ego's responsibility is to balance that coming from within mm. to the demands of what's happening yes. from the outside yes the ego has to engage with them it's got to and otherwise they'll just power through yeah yeah and assert themselves in in almost a kind of an unruly way yeah you yeah. have to engage the ego yeah. has to engage with yeah. them properly there are plenty of opportunities in the outer world beyond the boundary of you or i or anyone as an individual for instincts to actualize themselves inappropriately yes and they will do that and I think that's what yeah. people fear. That's what actually yeah. stops people from looking at them yeah. and yeah. reflecting on, on what they might mean yes. in their lives. Yes, and, and that, that's the point of engaging with them consciously. Yes, it is. Yeah. And one of the filters that you will put it, or we all do to some mm. extent, if we've been influenced by Carl Jung or anyone else who apparently as a third party has been influenced by him directly or otherwise, is that we put 
a structure in between us and our instincts that was never intended to be there. And we may call that an archetype. Yes. You know? Uh, if, you, if you want to choose your poison, fine, go ahead. But it's far better to interact directly with the instinct because then this elusive archetype, whatever it really is, will appear mm. on its own terms and mm. it will tell you. You're not telling it what it's going to be. It will tell you. Yeah. And this is so important for these would-be psychonauts because the, the psychonauts are still inside their own ego. They haven't got outside it yet, a lot of them anyway, not, not, not being too broad-brushed there. But in the sense that if they adopt a cultural narrative fantasy and internalise that and then just wander around in it, that essentially is an ego fantasy. If you then project that back towards what they might call the self, that's all they're going to bounce off it. Mm. It'll just be a reflection of their ego. It won't be the true self because they're not experiencing the self on its own terms. The path to the self, as Jung coined it, which we would call the psychological self, not the wholeness of that, because behind that is the biology of the self, the genome. What you get then is a reflection and a bounce off of yourself, of your own ego. You're still inside it, you haven't got outside of it. And this is about mannered communication. Yeah? You have to relax, you have to stoop a little, you have to set aside everything and open yourself up to the experience of what the psyche wants to give you. Then a true dialectic can start then mm. between the ego and the unconscious. Yes. But um, be very, very careful. You know, instincts are fantastic, but they take no prisoners. Mm. And if you don't, if you don't communicate with them, along the way, along the way to get past you and get out into the world, mm. they will create a hell of a lot of problems for you emotionally in terms of adaptation, creating complexes, neuroses, all sorts of so-called psychiatric conditions. And they, they come along Edinger's ego self-axis and are as regular as buses. If you think you've ducked one, don't worry, there'll be another one along in a minute. And it'll put that pressure on you, the pressure for you to adapt, to maximise the plasticity within the instinct so that you can resolve it and focus down to operating with that in the environment. And if you don't do that, then, then there will be problems. If you do, you'll get healthy. Yeah, the minute you engage with them, the minute you, you, do you, that, you take the yeah. pressure out of yeah. things. Yeah, and th this is a big lesson that we learned clinically, is that you have to clear the decks, you literally do, of all this archetypal crap and clutter that you might get by reading Jung's collected works. And that's with other people, and it's with yourself. At the core, Jung knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He, he was the only Carl Jung there was and ever will be. Inside his own psyche and his own adaptation to himself, he was completely comfortable, absolutely fine with it. And he did really well with it too. But you can't necessarily follow that route. You have to discover what yours is. But there are basics. Yes. And the basics have to do with lifespan development, instincts, and the way to understand both of them is the personal myth. And we're going to get this out there, yeah. you know, um, within a couple of weeks, we'll have a, a complete manual and a whole series of instructional videos and in, in how to deal with this and to give yourself a way of understanding it. But for now, inform yourself from Jung's collected works, but don't believe you're him, you're not, you're yourself. Well, let Jung be um, Jung. Let Jung and be you Jung. be yourself. Yeah. Um, and let your own instincts tell you 
what they want. Let the psyche talk to you in its own terms. That's automatic respect. It will respect you back. You'll get a result and you'll get it quickly. No need to be locked in. No need to be locked into years and years of several times a week analysis. No. It's not necessary. It really isn't. I like that. Um, okay. Thank you, Andre, for your question. That's fantastic. And uh, this next one comes from Broken Magus. I believe you're now called Brazen Magus. And, uh, and you ask, where is the line drawn between the paranormal and the occult? Beyond that, what is the correct manner in which one should engage with both of these strains of weirdness, be it individually, in relation to a patient or client, or within a larger collective, in a psychologically healthy manner that may benefit everybody involved in the long run? Well, that's a big question because there's, there's, well, yes. there's more than one question in it. Yes, um, yes. I mean, the people that we see clinically have usually been harmed in some yes. way, unfortunately. Yes, yeah. yeah. So in that sense... Whereas you accept the fact that they have had a particular belief system and that's perhaps led to them becoming unstable. Mm. Um, and for rapport, you have to go there with them sufficiently for them to feel that you understand and you know have mm. some feeling for what they've been through. To offer them a way out of either the paranormal or the occult, as he calls it, you need a third position. And the position that I would intuitively take with that and have done practically would be to take a parapsychological position which gives you a slightly different angle. Parapsychology is um, a bit of a pariah discipline within psychology as a whole but th that's not important with respect to clinical work. The, the rapport element's important and having a perspective that isn't contaminated by one view or the other. Uh, as fringe as parapsychology is as a scientific discipline you tend not to get people who are doing it who are disturbed by the material. Mm. The people who tend to get disturbed by it are people who treat it either as occult or as paranormal in the sense of paranormal that they have no containing belief system, yeah. no way of making sense of it. They experience it as nonsense with respect to their capacity to understand the world and themselves. So parapsychology gives them a framework whereby they can begin to apply general psychology to the phenomenon. That gives it a little bit of immunity, a little bit of protection. So I would take that approach. And also, that's the approach that Carl Jung took in his doctoral thesis on the psychology and psychopathology of so-called occult phenomenon. That's the way in. And then, uh, depending on what kind of a state that person is in, how desiccated they are with respect to their identity, what complexes may have been mobilised and all the rest of it, well then you need to come up with a treatment plan, helping them to knit together what has been separated. And to do that, again, you have to find what the original personality was with respect to its trajectory, and of course that's going to be their personal myth. And you don't necessarily have to ask for it in those terms, clinically, because it can take a lot of time. If this is more of an emergency, then you need to rely on more direct, but paradoxically indirect methods of accessing what that might be. And then when you find that Ariadne's thread, because that's what it's like, you can begin then to wrap the healthy part of that person around it, and at the same time trim away the crap. Mm and help them to hang on to that thread and pull themselves out from the past where they've harmed themselves into the present where they are beginning to heal 
and then have some foresight of the future where they are different and integrated. So it's a management process that's broad spectrum, but you would begin it, or I would, by offering them a third position which has some objectivity, but at the same time can go into their experience. So transcendent position. A transcendent, yeah. It's, it's like the first, yeah. In, in effect, it is, yeah. It, 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 it is like the Jungian transcendent position. Mm. I wouldn't go into Carl Jung and go... No, you uh, wouldn't uh, need uh, to say that, but no. that's what you'd be no. thinking. Certainly informed yeah. by it, yes. obviously. Everything yeah. would be informed. I would yeah. default back to Jung's original work on it because it is, it is really good. Mm. It's still good. It is. It's still absolutely bloody brilliantly good. Yes. And that's the place to go. Yeah. Um, he went a bit woo-woo later, but at, but at the beginning, yeah, fine. Mm. You know, but when Jung had his so-called psychotic episode from 1912 onwards, around the time of the separation from Sigmund Freud, after he'd been exposed for quite a long time to raw psychosis and schizophrenia, unbuffered by any kind of medication, and he started producing all sorts of symbols and and his archetypal theory. Frankly, he was never probably quite the same after that uh, and he managed to hold himself together quite nicely and he was very creative now, had he not been he probably would have relapsed back into psychosis but his early work up to that point uh, was very very interesting all his work on complexes and his work on the occult yeah. but what I've just said is a, li a little bit of an insight into Jung's own personal myth but we can come to that another time yes uh, yeah, there's nothing really more I can add to that except my own level of um, experience with the occult. And of course, Stephen Pauline, your experience will be presumably a little bit different to mine because you've seen people as patients who've been suffering with this, whereas I haven't. I just sort of played with it for a little bit. And I'd say if, if you're in that state to so anybody watching who's intrigued by the occult and intrigued by the paranormal, yeah, that's absolutely fine. But if it's taking you away from reality and you'll know if it is, like you really will know if it is, then to just don't use it. So yeah, there's the tr transcendent position. But indeed, if there's something that's not serving you, cut it out. And it'd be the same thing with any kind of strange belief system, you know. Um, I never liked the paranormal anyway, because it always used to freak me out as, as a kid. You know, all the all the ghosts and everything coming for me. So that was ne never a risk. But the occult, I know, is incredibly seductive. But get away from it if you can, unless it's, you know, stabilising you and you're happy and you're healthy and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, could, you could insert any belief system, like you you've could. just suggested. Mm. You could put any religion in there mm. too, because some of them, some versions of the common and popular religions that we all know of are absolutely bad for you, yeah. for, for your health. That doesn't even say they all are, but, but some versions of them are. And, you know, they're cult-like, and people sometimes need help in extracting themselves from that mess. But at bottom, it's the same thing. The same psychodynamics are involved in being in, I'll say it's an orthodox monotheistic religious cult, and in the occult, the same dynamics are involved if you find yourself in trap there. Well, it usually involves some kind of trance-like state. People become yes, entranced by do. ideas, they don't do. they? They do. Yeah, and yeah. trapped by them. And trapped by them. And this has been known since the time of Mesmer, Franz Anton Mesmer. Yeah. Don't underestimate him. No. He was a showman, for sure. But uh, there was a lot in what he got himself up to as well. And certainly, by the time we get to James Braid, the guy who coined the term hypnosis, then real discoveries were made, massive ones. Very, very interesting. Thank you for that question. And uh, the next question comes from Kath C. And she asks, individuals who believe they are masters of their fate 
are as a rule the slaves of destiny. And that's a quote from Carl Jung, Letters to Valentine Brook, dated 16th of November, 1959. And the main question seems to be, how does the analysis of the unconscious tie into one's fate slash destiny? Could this be primarily linked to the, to the, into the idea of a personal myth? Perhaps you could mention the connections between fate, destiny, free will, and the study of the unconscious within the sphere of depth psychology. What do you two think about that? Yeah, that, that is a very, very broad question. Very, very broad indeed. But the important thing to understand is that what we have here is a timeline of development. And if we don't understand the person's context to its fullest extent, you're not going to be able to understand how, as Jung said it, the future casts its shadows <coughs> backwards into the present. Um which is really what we mean by fate and about being able to pick up destiny, that kind of thing. And that the, the unconscious does have this capacity to anticipate, even if it's only on a probabilistic level, of a number of possibilities, but then kind of summating that into a general picture, which gives you an impression of what may happen. This is not to be too fatalistic or deterministic about the unconscious and, say, dreams or fantasies that it may produce. Because if we become too much that way, we'll become superstitious, <clears throat> which is not good. Because superstition is neurotic, in essence, and it's an, an attempt to get ahead even of the kind of thing that we're looking for in this question, which is some kind of indication of potential for the future. And the unconscious will not like that. The more superstitious you become and therefore the more you try to anticipate laterally what the unconscious is preparing for in the form of perhaps an incubation uh, of uh, future potential, uh, the more it will kick back and the more the neurosis then will widen, the more superstitious you become and then you fall then into a positive feedback loop wherein the error is amplified. So we have to be really, really careful how we read things. Uh, clearly sometimes things are anticipated or uncannily accurately that, that that can happen but you do have to be very very careful it's like the oracles in ancient Greece um, and they probably worked on the level of, uh, of the unconscious and through intuition in its broadest sense of meaning so uh, I, I'd be careful but if we go back now to biology, so we take the elevator down and away from psychology then, then the genome anticipates your development. It anticipates as soon as <coughs> you know, um, you're conceived that you are going to become on the basis of that initial genetic plan, the biological person that you will become. In other words, the phenotype that you will become in interaction with the environment. Your psychology is also laid down there in basic form. All the instincts take uh, take their form. All those uh, pre-programmed releases of behaviour uh, in the instincts form then. So you can say the anticipation is there. And this is what Jung meant by teleology in that sense, which is that <clears throat> the end goal of your lifespan is anticipated at the beginning. So the purpose of um, grasping hold of your personal myth is in part to anticipate the future uh, so yeah we, we are in this this frame which shifts we're, we're kind of passengers on our own timeline to some extent uh, and there are a number of possibilities 
and if we can anticipate the future by looking at the past uh, and understanding from where we've come and then where we are going, we can start to take some kind of control over over fate potentially. So yeah, I, I'd advise to analyze the unconscious to get its opinion on things, but do not take a superstitious position in respect of it because you will fall into a neurotic trap if you do. And this is what happens to people who blunder far too easily into the occult, for example, which, which is, is full of traps for the unwary. To be honest, I do think that free will yeah, free will I'm is sorry, largely yeah. an illusion. Yeah. You can only have ultimate free will if you're a god and then a monotheistic god with no competition from your environment or from other deities. So free mm. will would have to be a monotheistic god in complete control of its environment and of itself. That's an unimaginable thing, mm. really. Uh, but anything below that level of resolution has so many conditioning factors engaging with it, so many, uh, that it's really impossible. And it comes down almost to self-talk, also suggestion that you, you have a lot of free will. There, there, there's some choice. Um, I mean, in our field, there's um, Rogerian counselling and the notion that you can give unconditional positive regard to someone which is just absolute nonsense because nothing is without conditions mm. to even believe that to formulate that idea <clears throat> and then to make it the central dogma of a, a form of a therapy um, must mean you're incredibly ignorant of the unconscious and incredibly ignorant of the determining factors biologically and environmentally um, we, we can operate very narrowly with, with choice in this real world that we all inhabit whether we like that or not uh, and that will set any limit at all meaningfully on the concept of, of free will uh, it has to be some of course uh, because you know the the role of the ego the ego personality is to adapt the widest possible <laughs> bandwidth of plasticity in adaptation to environmental pressures and also to measure up against instinctive pressure and perhaps even archetypal pressure, if, if we think in a classical Jungian sense, that's coming from within with respect to that adaptation. And because when we face pressures internally and externally, we're right in the middle with the meat in the sandwich, if you like, of adaptation. And this is why we become neurotic and why neurosis is normal, because we can't solve everything. It's mm. impossible. Um, we can't even solve the trajectory of our own individuation. We can only kind of get hold of that drive and come to some kind of understanding with its pressures um, because simply the genome itself is pushing. Now, the Freudians proposed a death instinct, Thanatos, uh, as an opposite to Eros, the life or pleasure principle. And they suggested it was a drive towards becoming an inorganic state again. And a lot of people have criticised them for saying that's far too pessimistic and that we should have, you know, a kind of Pollyanna view of life uh, and of uh, the human condition. Yet, if we make observations externally into the environment, we can see this kind of thing does go on. Uh, and in the ageing process, although there is resistance to that and there's a lot of fear for a lot of people uh, when they do grow old and, and they face the inevitability of their death, you can still see the fact that the system is winding down. And this sets in sometimes decades before. 
as Jung says, the future mm. casts its shadows back. Some people resist that and they become what Jung would have called a poor Eternus, the eternal youth, or the female equivalent, the puella. Uh, and they occupy themselves with mm. a level of energy and goal-directed behaviour that was more appropriate for an earlier phase of life. That can be good if you get the balance right. If you don't know, it means you're out of kilter with your environment and you're out of kilter with the facts of life as such, broadly, which will include the fact that Thanatos will creep up on you rather like a biological entropy. And, <clears throat> you know, if you're into recycling, yeah, <laughs> you're probably into it because it's a fact of nature that nature recycles. And it recycles us. It recycles us continually. We're shedding skin cells all the time. We're turning material over. We, we produce physiological, biological waste. Uh, we collect clutter in our psyche in the form of all sorts of uh, material that should, by in modern parlance, be defragged. But it isn't. And that this can create inertia on our capacity to think clearly. Mm. Uh, some of these... Uh, psychological structures which uh, f form loosely associated elements can reassociate into complexes and causes problems so it's a continuous battle all the time to sustain homeostasis throughout the lifespan but eventually homeostasis itself will naturally run down uh, and then you get the the actual act of running down and you get its symbolic representation which you can see in culture and all sorts of forms of media um, films, games, novels, you name it, it's out there and we know it happens. So there's a lot to come to terms with and I honestly believe the best way to do that is to find your personal myth because that's the best place, in fact the only place that you can make any real sense of who you are. If you avoid that and instead live in fantasy, well that is rather like a drug and you need a continuous fix but you're not really resolving anything. The, the culture will keep producing fantasies. You can rely on that. Mm -hmm. uh, and rather like a drug pusher, <laughs> it will do that. And if you consume that continuously and live by it, life will actually pass you by and you wouldn't have lived it. This is another reason why we say that you should engage fully with instincts as much as possible, not to surrender to them, but at least then you'll know what's pushing you from behind. And if you can get into sync with them, even if that sync just means that you can reason with them. For example, somebody said on, on YouTube, a YouTube <coughs> comment to the video from yesterday, past the comment, more or less, is it possible to live an authentic life and not have children? And not to re repress your instincts, but to make a conscious decision that you're not going to do that. Uh, and I think he was concerned that the emphasis that I was making on instincts suggested that that was somehow inauthentic. Well, we've said on earlier videos mm. that there are many ways to live an authentic life. Yes. The essential thing with respect to instincts is to acknowledge that they're there and also to realise that they are negotiable between them. You can't repress them in a blanket way. If you do that, you make enemies of all of them. But some instincts will pressure you at certain times of life more than others. A lot of it depends on lifespan development stage. And where you're at for example for women the maternal instincts if that's been satisfied by not having children in other words you do other things in the first half of life it may not seem to be a problem until the menopause mm. 
And at that point, the fact that it's irrevocable that you can't have children, rather than it simply being a personal choice, yes. may well kick biology in. Biology determines it for you. Biology has just bypassed whatever you may think about yeah. your own free will about making a choice, and it's just mm. said, whatever you think, you're not, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And now, and not only that, there will be changes in your body that you can't do that much about. You, you can obviously have hormone replacement therapy, and you can do what you can, but nevertheless, that is, that is still an intervention which you have to manage against... The, the biological yeah, clock. Yeah, what nature has in mind for About you, what yeah. nature has in mind. So already mm. you've passed an entropic milestone in your life. And there, there are similar ones for men as well. So free will, you know, if it was real in, in that 100% sense, is you could just decide not to have a menopause. You could decide not to age. You could decide not to have complexes. You could decide anything mm. you like. And, of course, all of that is nonsense. But some approximation to all of those things, pretty much, is found in fantasy. And it, yeah, it's useful because it can reduce stress, but when it contains you to the point where you live only through that, and then insist on involving other people in your fantasy, and it becomes a shared delusion, well, that can operate at the level of two people, and then it can operate at the level of a family, of a peer group, and then a culture, and then a whole civilization. It's going on now. And one of the reasons that Jung is as popular as he is, in my own view, for what that own view is worth, is simply that his capacity to feed into fantasy, if his ideas are, I'm going to use the word, perverted from perhaps their intended use, and are directed thereafter into maintaining a fantasy life and a disengagement with instinct and adaptation, well, that just actually serves the catabolism which is breaking this culture down at the moment. The thing that's really missing is instinct, without a doubt. But you have to be careful because the compensation for that will appear in the form of some cultural internet prophets who will over-amp instinct in an inappropriate way. And there will be secondary gain for them because they'll be using it as a marketing tool for capital gain. They'll be in an Adlerian phase of their own life and development. It'll be their power principle that will be operating them. And the people then who are influenced by them are in effect being farmed for their secondary gain. So you have to be really, really careful because nature is cruel, you know, very, very cruel. And it's very, very hierarchical as well. So be careful who you listen to. Be careful about free will, you know, and about the illusion and delusion of it. Take notice of your instincts. You don't have to agree with them. But there has to be a reckoning with them. Yeah, it's got to be a negotiation of sorts. There's got to be some kind of of reckoning. Um, And if you increase your consciousness with respect to them, you can then come to some kind of adjustment and deal with them. A deal, I don't mean forcibly deal, but an agreement, that kind of deal. Because they will change too. And they will start to go towards Thanatos and towards entropy. And if you're too estranged from your instincts, you won't be able to negotiate with them over that either. And then the kind of neurosis you get in the second half of life, and then in the third quarter, and then the final moment of your of your life, or the final uh, build-up to it, will be absolutely horrendous because you've, you've you've been estranged from them, and you haven't agreed with the notion that life is a trajectory and it has a beginning, it has a midpoint, and it has an end. This is Jung, this is Edinger as well, and his ego self-axis. But the thing that regulates all of that is the genome, and it's all expressed through your instincts. So don't 
dive off into archetypal inflationary fantasy thinking you, you have the free will of a deity because we don't. We just have a capacity to over amp our fantasies and uh, that can be a very dangerous and neurotic thing. And re remember, the, 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 the psyche is monitoring you all the time, all the time. So it's, it's good to get into communication with it, get on its side and see if you can get a little bit more out of it than you would have done otherwise. So in that sense, I'm not fatalistic. In a general sense, yes, life will run out, like Jung said, it does. But you can make the most of it if you can become more conscious and if you can allow yourself to communicate with it on its terms. You will always get the best out of the time you've got then and the life that you've got. Um, escaping to fantasy is just like a drug. Yeah. Well, part of the problem, I think, Steve, is that life's become very sanitised too. Yeah. I mean, birth and, and death in, in earlier times, and even now yeah. in some cultures, um, people are, are much more involved in it. I mean, we're very quick, aren't we, when somebody dies to kind of, you mm. know, parcel them off and get them to the crematorium and all the rest yeah. of it. So people aren't, aren't used to being around death. I mean, you mentioned this the other mm. day in a previous podcast yeah. um, about, you know, obviously, it's, it's come from your, your yeah. working life and... Yeah you know you you deal with dead bodies all the yeah. time and you mm -hmm. you know when that life force has gone and and, and and so on but to all intents and purposes most people are protected yeah. from that so they have no real experience of what it means to sort of to be at the end to reach the end of your life regardless no. of what age or circumstances no. you find no. yourself in no. so i think that kind of sanitization of things pushes people more towards fantasy again it does it does. We're not immersed in it in the way that we would have been by, no. in the way previous generations yeah. would have been. Like no. they might have had, you know, and in, in some Irish um, traditions, they, they'll mm. they'll have, you know, the body in the coffin in the middle of the living room yeah. and and so on. Wake, yeah. Like yes, awake. Mm. Um, but it's you know we've lost a lot of that. Mm. We have, and so we've become afraid of it in mm. a way. We've we've wanted to just put it away and yeah. almost uh, go on as if it doesn't exist. Yeah. It's important to face the fears. Um, yeah. I'm reminded with, with you know, you're speaking, Pauline, there yeah. about uh, Young's face to face interview, the famous one, you know, where he talks about uh, old people and analysing yeah. their dreams and that the unconscious yeah. just doesn't seem to uh, regard death. Yes. Uh, and it, it, people dream as if they're going to live on forever. Um, well, yeah, I've seen some of that and I've seen different things. I've, I've seen people approach death and be utterly terrified uh, and not only that mm. also what you get is is a very strange counter reaction from the instincts uh when they when the instincts themselves are anticipating death you'll see believe it or not um uh, an overamping or an increase in the valency of erotic and sexual fantasies in people who are about to die and are dying and if you like this mm. is this is life this is the, the last gasp of eros the pleasure principle of libido, the life force, knowing it's going to be extinguished. And the, these people then link up in their minds right back to every event that they've had that's meant something to them emotionally and erotically and sensually to hang on to that sense of their individual identity still being animated by the life force because the, the, the shadow of extinction, it, it, personal extinction, is closing in on them. So what Jung said is true for some people, but what I've just said is also true. Uh, and what I'm describing now are instincts in the, in the raw. You know, it's, you have to come to some terms of them. 
and if you can prepare in advance for this then, then it's going to be easier mm. otherwise it will come at you in, in a, uh, a compensated form like I've just described now the people who have pushed the notion of the end of their life away from them uh, they will find that the, the instinct to live will push and push and push and push at them and grasp and try and get them to you know, take that last breath if you like in a living way but it's too split it's too divided they've not been in touch with themselves enough it's it's intensely sad very very sad so um, the harsh realities are that if you ignore harsh reality you'll suffer mm. but if you don't and if you engage with yourself properly then there's a, there's a much higher chance of adapting to the different phases of life good answer I like that there's nothing else I can really add to that either it's to have sort of knocked that one out of the park so well done uh the, the next question comes from Nightchild, once again, who's becoming my new favourite my new favorite member of the community because you've got so many questions. Uh, Nightchild asks, for those feeling stuck in life by not knowing what it is they truly want to do, how can they find their calling? Is this part of the personal myth? And if so, how can you develop your personal myth to find your calling? Now, I'm noticing a lot of questions are either about the personal myth or the answers involve the personal myth in some capacity. So I'm, I'm excited when we can finally get this this guide and the personal myth stuff out so we can generally direct direct people to... Yeah, it's, 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 it's on its way. We, we, we want to do justice to it and it'll have to be at more than one level. There's got to be a user-friendly version and there's got to be a technical version. And then as a heads up, I'll probably put something in about Carl Jung's personal myth as a case study. Now, I think that's valid. Uh, he did psychological analyses on people, so did Sigmund Freud. You know, uh, Jung did one on James Joyce, for example, Freud on Leonardo. Um, so there's, there's no reason why someone shouldn't do one on him. And in fact, Anthony Stevens has. Anthony Stevens' uh, biography of Jung called On Jung is an analysis of lifespan developments uh, overlaying onto Jung's own life. So that's a kind of an attempt at an explication of Jung's personal myth. Um, so I'm going to put one in and uh, I'm going to do it in such a way that illustrates perhaps what people might need to understand now rather than when Anthony Stevens wrote that book which was about for about 30 years ago um, time's moved on the culture's moved on um, Young's currency has changed completely and we've noticed this in fact we, we commented on mm. it this morning that you know, back in the 70s and 80s, 90s even, and into the 2000s, uh, knowledge or information that Carl Jung even existed was so yes, minimal. It's very hard to come. Very, very hard. It? it was all in, in, in basically, you know, you had to videotape something if you were fortunate off yes. the TV. Uh, and we collected actually uh, a collection of over a thousand videotapes uh, of, of various things. We had a massive videotape library. And as technology's moved on, that's all been a waste of time. So they've gone on the skip. But now, access to aspects of Jung's ideas within this present culture so easy mm. uh, and yet it's been used in a way Jung himself probably would have been very suspicious of so yeah we have to we have we have to be careful about how we illustrate Carl Jung's myth my own view is that there are some things that require compensating for and I'm going to do it in that spirit so it's not going to be a halo job and it's not going to be a hatchet job. I'm hoping to point out where Jung's ideas came from and how then you can understand his model and his life in tandem uh, within the frame of his personal myth. That's going to be really important. 
particularly if you're finding yourself exposed to those ideas and somehow you're using them to uncover your own. But, you know, Young 101 is do it your own way. Mm. Now, he didn't want people to copy him. He didn't like it. He said, thank God I'm young and not a Jungian. He didn't want the Carl Gustav Jung Institute in Zurich, which is in Kusnack village. It's just a, a couple of doors down from his house. Yeah. He, he said he didn't want that. He didn't want particularly to have that much to do with that. He just let it get on with itself. Um, now, that could be a compensation, and it could well be that he really was very pleased with it and uh, liked it, or it could be genuine insofar as he wanted to be his own man and wanted other people to be their own person. So, yeah, when, when we do the personal myth, I want to put the case study in. I want to put uh, ease of access, practical, frontline way of dealing with it, and then some technicalities and comparisons with other approaches to personal mythology that have been current over the past few decades. So, um, Do we want to attempt to answer that now, then, that question? Or? Um, no, I think I, 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 that particular part of the question, if, if my child doesn't mind, I'd rather wait, because we're, mm. we're fairly close to getting this done and there'll be a video series on it. Uh, but just to uh, to mention, yes, it's underway, uh, and they're the, if you like, the, the working terms of the brief that we have yeah. uh, to put that together. Uh, can you just remind me, sorry about the monologue, uh, can, you, can you just remind me again of the other elements of Night Child's question, please? Yeah, James? yeah, I'll, I'll give a crack at it as well. It's um, for those feeling stuck in life by not knowing what it is they truly want to do, how can they find their calling? And I, I kind of want to throw something out as well, because it doesn't directly involve the personal myth, though it helps. Um, watch yourself. I think because this this is what happened with myself. It's like, I mean, people who watch the channel will know generally what's happened over the last few months with myself. It's like massive life changes. I go from PhD student and doing loads of different things, including with other people on YouTube, to ditching all of it and going down a completely different road. But it wasn't a random just choice like that. I I almost I got over the the things which were holding me back and there were a few things one of them was an over adaptation to thinking and I still am overly adapted to thinking I'm not a finished product by any means but I allowed myself to be driven by feeling for a moment and to allow those instincts to come out and be like what do I want to do and so if you if you generally watch yourself carefully you may be able to depending on your level of individuation or level of development or your understanding so far nightchild of the personal myth to identify what might what's most likely to be you and what's most likely to be some kind of complex so, for example, myself and my PhD was not there because I wanted to do my PhD. Because I realised, actually, I really don't like it. I like the idea of me liking it, but I don't like it because it's horrible. You know, why, what, you know, so it's like I'm not, I wasn't happy there. But what other things I want to do? What, and the thing was, what am I spontaneously driven to do? When, when I would go and have a conversation with somebody, what would the conversation naturally turn to with my own energy? And it seems to be that the, the two strands of myself is depth psychology and then also entrepreneurship these these two things together it's like okay they were latent all along through the personal myth so it would be it'd be the same thing with yourself it's like where does your energy naturally tend to go to that's also productive because your energy might also go to things that aren't productive whatsoever and and so they're they're less likely to be sincere in like a well-adapted human being so that that would be on just a general pointer i guess before we crack very well stated Mm. yeah very well stated Depends what yeah. opportunities are available in your environment too, doesn't there? That, that, it does. that allow you yeah. to make those changes yes. too. So, it's uh, it's yeah. far from straightforward, really. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. You you will know you you will know deep inside, and perhaps not so deeply. Perhaps just off the surface. Mm. Uh, and I, I agree with James on mm. that. Absolutely, I think he was bang on. Mm. Sweet. Okay. Well, thank you, Night Child.
this next question comes from Matthew Barbarino, and, and he asks... Is this specifically to yourself, Steve, actually? So, Pauline, you and I have to have to be quiet for this. Steve, how, <laughs> how might you advise someone who believes they may be suffering from schizoid personality disorder? This person, is left anonymous, has had severe lifelong difficulty establishing and maintaining relationships with others, and at present has no significant connections with the outside world. Recently, they have come to believe that they are in need of help, but don't know where to start. Thank you. Well, um, so that they've come to believe they have a schizoid personality disorder. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, we, we need to know what suggestive influences have been at work uh, that led to that belief. Uh, and Pauline, we, we know, don't we? Uh, when when you start any any kind of medical training, you, you acquire everything, don't you? you, you Is it all up... right for me to comment, or do you want? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely you do and I think med medical training particularly because obviously you, you're exposed to classifications of, of disorders and conditions and, and diseases and so mm. on that you you pro well obviously before you train you don't even know exist yeah. um, and often it's a, a high pressure learning situation so there's a lot of stress involved as well um, and uh, that might just be enough to, to tip you into some kind of hypochondriasis might not yeah. it it does happen. It, it does happen. Yeah, yeah, more often than not, actually. I um I look on these things as kind of diagnosis complex. And yeah. There's there's two ways in, into that outside of what what Paul's just said is uh, one is where you self-diagnose yourself into into something, uh, and the other is where some institution perhaps diagnoses you and you accept that that suggestion. Yes. So the it's based on suggestion in both cases, and it is we're, we're Pauline. Uh, Pauline's point as well about when you when you're training. I mean, it can happen in psychological training as yes, well as biomedical training. Yeah. You um, you start to read what a neurosis is, and suddenly you are, you know, because you've read it. Yeah. Um, and you you find some triggers or trip points in a text, yes. a written piece of text, or an authoritative book, and suddenly you've got it, mm. because we do try and explain ourselves to ourselves, mm. and and that can become a problem and literally a diagnosis complex, uh, a self-diagnosis complex. And if you're not careful, you can then also suggest other people into believing it as well. Uh, and then they start to go in orbit around your own influence, which is negative for you, and they're feeding it all the time. And you've, you've produced this, perhaps, uh, but it's then out in the social environment, in your family or your peer group, or even including doctors. You know, you, you can persuade them that there's something wrong with you when there isn't. So you have to be very, very careful about that. So I'd always advise move away from all of that. If it's a psychological issue and schizoid personality disorder is one hell of a thing to hit yourself with, mm. you know, that, that, that's, that's a real smack in the proverbial teeth yeah. to yourself to do that. Um, put it this way, if, if, you ha if, if someone has it, really has it, it will be obvious. Um, but you can fantasize yourself into it simply because you might be introverted uh, to a particular extent or because that introversion means that you're locked into thinking a lot of the time and, and internal thoughts you know that could just be introverted thinking or even introverted intuition or introverted sensing it doesn't mean that you have a schizoid personality disorder if that person feels they have difficulty in maintaining or you know, starting and then maintaining a relationship with, with, with other people, that could be the other person's fault. And you may just have been unlucky who you've met. 
that they've not been in sufficient sync with your personality and your character at whatever stage of life you are at. And then you internalise that essential rejection as some kind of wound, and that then feeds the later diagnosis uh, complex in the form of a confirmation bias. Because complexes will do that. Complexes have confirmation biases, or at least they emit them, so if you like, so that the ego then believes that particular form of crap. Uh, because without that, the complex can't sustain itself as an autonomous structure outside of ego consciousness. There's discrimination. So all of that's going in. What, what would you? Yeah. Sorry, Steve. Yeah. Uh, is there, um, I don't want to kind no, of. No, no, go ahead. Gentleman Ron, yeah. concern want, wanted you to, to kind of answer it. Yeah, but, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about the suggestion coming from outside, mm. from say like healthcare professionals, um, you know, doctors, GPs, psychiatrists, whoever. Mm. Um, I just wanted to make the point really that sometimes they use this kind of language in a very loose way amongst themselves, not necessarily even in a diagnostic way, but it just becomes a language with wh another language with which to to describe um, the phenomena of, of what they see when, when patients come in to see them. Um, but if you don't know that personally, and you just hear hear things said about you, or sometimes written about you, if you have access to your case notes, for example, yeah. you can start to believe that that is their, their definitive position on things, and that they've actually made a diagnosis mm. uh, of you, and that might not be the case at Absolutely all. Absolutely true. Uh, I mean, I'm reminded of someone, obviously, you know, I, I won't say who, uh, recently, who was concerned that she'd been diagnosed as having a fugue state when the, the, the lady in question had actually made a conscious decision to make some some very big changes in her life um, and all of which have been properly thought through and so on but because she saw this comment or she believed she saw this comment made on her case notes she now believes unfortunately that she's been diagnosed in this way or or, or um, you know that this is what what the medics really think about it when that might not be the case at all so I think you have to resist the suggestion if you can from healthcare professionals if you see any of these kinds of things written about you for those reasons because it may not be the case at all no. and they do get a bit loose oh, they do. in the yeah, way they that they, they, they talk yeah. about people um, <clears throat> so yeah so those things just watch out for yeah uh, totally agree uh, and even uh, reading Carl Jung's collected works, there's an issue there because um, Jungians are extremely loose. I think I've, I've said this before about diagnostic categories. Yeah. They talk about latent psychosis. Mm. Well, you know, y you can't be sectioned for having a latent psychosis. You've either got one or you haven't. Yes. You know. Um, well, but what a thing to punish yourself with. Oh, if you were off. to take that yeah. on board and say, well, it's not happened to me yet, but it could be latent, yeah. and, yeah. and you feed that, that that's yeah. a terrible thing to do to yourself. It is. And and we're, we're going to do a podcast on power and the helping professions, we are, aren't yes. we? And yeah. that will be a feature of it, is how uh, analysts of all persuasions yeah. essentially abuse people by keeping them locked in a transference entrapment, a dependency. Um, you know, if you persuade somebody that they have something wrong with them, then the only way out of that, provided they continue to believe in it, is whatever you provide for them. 
I mean, we used to joke when we were young that, you know, yeah, persuade someone they've got a Freudian problem, then the only answer is, is, is a Freudian solution. Yes. And we would joke about that in the sense of we were asserting a Jungian position rather than a Freudian one. But, of course, the Jungians do it too, mm. uh, particularly when they have lengthy analysis that can last years, <clears throat> three or four times a week, and then they go on about the transference relationship and then any sort of assertion of a, a person's individuality or their needs then becomes transference resistance. And uh, the patients, the Anaslans, are told that that's what's happening to them, that they are manifesting a transference resistance and that they should just give in to it. And the analyst knows best and they've got a latent this and a latent that and they've yes. got uh, a certain kind of personality disorder or yes. they are schizoid. Yeah. You'll find the expression schizoid littered, yes. littered across uh, uh, Jungian books uh, and, and papers. But if you t were to take that person yeah. down to your local psychiatric institute and suggest to a psychiatrist that this person was schizoid, they go, what? They would. They, they mm. Yeah, like, what planet are you on? You know, yes. uh, and that would be the, the, the equivalence of the woo-woo effect from the biomedical side of the equation towards the analysts. And yet when you look at it, what you've got is an entrapment based on, on the transference and the counter-transference, which is the need for the analyst to keep people locked in to him or her for financial reasons and for status reasons mm. as well. Mm. So be really, really careful. It's insidious, isn't it? It's it is. horrible, it actually. Is. Uh, and of course, if you can then wrap someone up in all this, this archetypal bullshit, and a lot of it is, you know, woo-woo and fantasies and what you have to do and all the rest of it. And if people buy into that, then they remain trapped. So someone could go to uh, a Jungian analyst, for example, of, of an orthodox persuasion with what is a very simple problem and then come out broken, far more broken yes. than when they went in. Yes, without a doubt. And you could, you could get two people, the same problem, one would come to someone who would solve the problem quickly and one would go to the Jungian. Three years later, this person has actualised their life mm. and the other one is still bust. Yes. And the variable, you guessed it, mm. Mm. It's, it's, it's the classical orthodox Jungian approach of utilising the transference to entrap people. So you have to be very, very careful of that, don't you? You do. Uh, would you mind me mentioning Wayne? No. At all. No. Um, Steve has an elder brother, mm. Wayne. Um, seven years older. Seven years yeah. older. Yeah. And he is incredibly introverted uh, and has been all yeah. his life. He has. And, and we used to have a bit of a family joke, really, in so much as we, we'd go around to Steve's uh, house and we'd talk about Wayne falling awake rather than falling asleep because. Yeah. He appeared on the surface to be so disengaged from life. Yeah, he'd fall awake for 20 minutes in the <laughs> afternoon. And to speak to you and then he'd be back to sleep again, wouldn't he? back to sleep he? again, yeah. Um, but, it, you know, it'd be easy to describe him as mm, being schizoid. It would, yeah, it would. From an outer perspective. Yeah. Um, but he's stable. Completely. completely and utterly stable in yeah. terms of how he lives oh, his life. He's completely happy. He's held and, a job down. Oh, yeah, yeah. His whole life, he's retired. Yeah. So on. Oh, he's he's done, retired. He's, he's done, done all, all the normal, yeah. yeah. He just has his own character and his yeah. own shape to that character. Yes. Um, but a youngin would tell him there was something wrong with him, yeah. seriously wrong, mm. and would interfere with his life to the point where he would collapse. Yes. Whereas a psychiatrist would say, nothing wrong with him. Yeah. So mm. which one of them is right? Mm. He's actually very adapted and Extremely. very content in the lifestyle that he's chosen for himself. Yeah, and he absolutely. has absolutely every right to have yeah. that kind of a life. Yeah, yeah. 
So be, be careful reading the collected works because mm. you'll find all sorts of frightening things in mm. there. Not just in Ion, you know, you will in the psychogenesis of mental disease, for example, you know, and, and you'll believe then that you can create a severe mental illness in yourself just by thinking about it, that you can become schizophrenic simply by having a fantasy and thinking. And then, of course, it encourages you to fantasize. No, it, mm. uh, and I don't mean at all that Jung himself intended to do this, no. but there is an industry that's built up around that that is being utilised now by other kinds of people in the media, on the internet, you know, out there in cyberspace, uh, who are likewise utilising things to target a very, very vulnerable demographic of people. These guys know who they are and, mm. and they know how they're suffering. Mm. And they're being misled, I believe, sincerely into something. There is a problem. They're definitely up against a real problem out there, the way the culture's gone. But you'll always find that, that when situations like this arise in a culture, then there, there'll be a, a lot of reactions to that that will be exploiting different levels of it for their own ends. So be very, very careful. There, There is a battle to be won. There is. Uh, and that that is so incredibly serious. But just be careful, be really careful and, and be careful about interjecting these diagnoses of yourself, whether yes. that's psychiatric or even spiritual mm. as well, because that's another Trojan horse to get inside your head, you know, on the basis of a belief that you may go in with and then you encounter this material. And, you know, the borderline between that and some of the more weirder occult systems is wafer thin, very, very thin. And before you know it, you can cross that line. And if you do frankly you are then primed to become severely maladapted and you may end up then getting the kind of conditions that you may have feared getting and we know this from practical experience uh, and our emphasis is practical mm. practical you know no woo woo at all what works in the real world with real people that's that's our emphasis doesn't mean you can't have depth, though. No, not at all. You, and, and we you don't. can't assume that that just means no, everything no, we no. do is superficial. No, no, from it. no. Not at all. Not at all. Go deep or go as deep as you like. And we've probably already been there. And more than once, you know. And, and that's not anything other than just acknowledging the fact that we have done it. The thing is, though, you go in in that depth with the wrong person, you're going to damage them. You know, so you, you have to know how to, to work only on the surface as well. Although if you work the way that we propose, it's never on the surface because we work psychosocially and we work psychobiologically as well. There is no surface to a perspective like that. None at all. It's just down to a level of resolution. You know? yes. What lens you're using and you need more than one and you need to have them all available mm. to you to understand the reality of the person you're working with. I mean, it's not my responsibility to, to diagnose anybody over the internet. That'd be very irresponsible. But the, the symptoms that you've listed here, they, they ring a little bit close to home. So, you know, you said difficulty establishing and maintaining relationships with others and at present have no significant connections with the outside world. I know many people like that. It, and, and some of them very close to home. Some of them have been friends. Typically, my, my friends have generally been, you know, bottom of the social hierarchy <clears throat> for a variety of reasons. And, and I can see the way sort of loneliness can possess them, take control over them. 
and it's not nice. Then they end up projecting all other kinds of things onto the outside world and then indeed on themselves. So if that's the only symptom, that, 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 that's the caveat, if that's all it is, I've seen it before and doesn't necessarily mean it's schizoid. And loneliness can do horrible things for your own mental health and your own, I guess, internal narrative. So that's something as well to to consider. So what if this if this individual wants to wants to help their friend who has this thing, what what actionable advice would you if if you felt responsible to, uh, what actionable advice could you give to them? Well I would say again, and I know people are beginning to probably get sick of hearing it, I, I would say the personal myth, because without that you don't know who you are. And you need to know who you are before you can make any judgments about yourself and before you accept other people's judgments of you, you need to put yourself into context. Um, but in, in an everyday way, there is a simple way of working this out, and that's to use uh, Engel's hierarchy and see where you fit in and where all these different influences are, are on you uh, and how that's adjusted and affected your functioning at all these different levels simultaneously. That way you get an immediate snapshot of where you're at. And that, of course, is the result of your, your lifespan up to that point. Um, I say it's simple. Maybe we should do something on that and actually yeah. show some, some worked examples. Yeah, that would be good. Um, one good thing about that is it will get people out of their heads in a healthy way, you know, in the sense that they will no longer perhaps be focusing on themselves psychologically alone because we're not just psychological. But that's a trap, you see. You know, that, that's the rumination trap. And that's the trap that also makes you fall down the rabbit hole of fantasy and, and, and keep yourself there. But you're a social creature. Even if you feel that you're not or you're not relating socially, you are. You just haven't quite worked out what that is yet and you haven't integrated that into yourself. And also how your body is reacting right down to the, the genomic level and, and, as I say, your lifespan trajectory. So work that out. Get your systems profile, as it's called, mm. and then you'll see who you really are in the moment. Uh, and that's um, an essential element of uh, assessment for us in a clinical setting, that we want to know what a person is right then, there and now. And there's certainly more than they imagine they are, and certainly more than what they think their limitations are. And of course, then there's all the influences, as I say, from the outside that they may be unaware of. But people artificially draw a line mm. and say, this is where I, I end. And, you know, you don't. You need the bigger picture. You need the bigger picture, yeah. yeah. And then, like James uh, says, you can then resolve it down to, yeah, and be more focused about specific you can. things, can't you? You can. You yeah, to. you can. From 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 what he said, um, I have a lot of optimism. Yes. A lot of optimism. Mm. I mean, I, I do. I'm an, I'm an optimistic person because when your experience generally has been that you know results are not only possible, but if you do the right thing, they're routine. Then you do tend on the side of optimism and it's not Pollyanna thinking it's not like the CBT people sometimes try and induce in people just think positively and it'll all go away it's not about that it's about something deeper more profound and long lasting there's another thing you've reminded me of as well built into that question or I guess off the back of what we've just been talking about you've got um, the idea of the introvert versus the extrovert and this and, and I've, I've so I've gone through this as well and I've seen people who they'll jump into typology it's usually like fairly young girls who'll do this it's like like 18 years old they first get into typology uh, it's, it's kind of kind of kind of a stereotype like well I'm an introvert and so I don't like talking to people it's not true it's, it's just absolutely not true and I've gone through this cycle of like absolute bottom of the pit shyness where I would never put my hand up in class would speak to nobody and then 
now when people meet me in real life they're like oh you must be an extrovert it's like it's, it's more complicated than that no matter how introverted you are you're still a social person and it, it has to work like that it doesn't mean you have to want to go to parties and all the other general myths and things you associate with introvert versus extrovert it's just the direction in which your energy naturally flows out or in that's that, that that's how, it, how it's defined um but with that i think we should we should close up because this podcast is going to be going on for long enough so thank you steve thank you pauline appreciate you thank both you as always thank you thank everyone and thank thanks you. to everybody thanks to everybody as well who's asked questions of course if you'd like to have your own question answered then you can do so if you sign up at the ten dollar tier or higher on patreon we're going to be bashing these things out more frequently than we have been. I know the last, the previous three videos have all been this style of video because we've got a big backlog of questions. So if you'd like to, if you'd like to join in with that, with our um, soiree that we're doing on the Young to Live by Discord server, then uh, you're very, very welcome, of course. Um, and with that, thank you, everybody. See you again. Thank Bye. you.